So let's uh, turn to first 1.3. This is still uh, part of the intro introduction. So he introduces now uh, the verses, the following verses, verses around the eight views. So he asks, what, it is, what is it like when you turn your back on the natural path? So that's what I have been talking about. Yeah? So getting to know how it feels when you turn away from the natural path. So the natural path here, the Dzogchen view, the, the practice of just sitting, of uh, allowing that mysterious possibility to open up through just being present. So that's the natural path, the direct path. So what, it is what, what is it like? How does it feel? And I try to explain how it feels for me when I turn away from the natural path. Yeah? Defensiveness, fear, self-righteousness, wanting to be right. Uh, holding tightly on, on a certain belief system. And confusing that belief system system, con confusing the map with the territory. Yeah. Because you are enthralled by mistaken beliefs. So mistaken beliefs, that's all beliefs. All, all beliefs are mistaken in the sense that we feel when we have that beliefs, a bunch of, bunch of stories, a bunch of theories which we read up somewhere most of the time, or someone told us, or we came up with that ourselves, they are mistaken in the sense that we feel that the words refer to something. We, we feel when we say something, I, this is just an example, yeah, I, I'm, in con I'm in a deeper contact with my higher self. We feel that with that story, which we read somewhere, I mean, we were not born with the idea of a higher self. We found it somewhere, someone told us. And when we say that, we are convinced, we feel we are talking about something. But when you look at that sentence actually more deeply, you neither find the I who could have a higher self, nor do you find a higher self. You find a bunch of stories. So in that way, all beliefs are mistaken, yet in that recognition that all beliefs are mistaken, we don't lose our common sense that there is really crappy, stupid belief system, for example, fascism, and there's maps and belief systems, for example, the Shravaka view, the Hinayana view, which is also mistaken, but it is a view which leads into less suffering. So saying 
all maps are mistaken doesn't undermine our capacity to find a map for us who brings us somewhere. Because you are enthralled by mistaken views, beliefs, your puritanical practice is lopsided. Your puritanical practice is lopsided. So, maybe it's quite easy to sense the puritanical, puritanical practice uh, you know, in, in very ascetic belief systems, like, you know, where you have to give up everything. But uh, equally, uh, lopsided can be a very, like the tantric view, can be also lopsided. You can attach the same kind of seriousness and the same kind of truth, and you can can become a fundamentalist, fundament, fundamentalistic tantric practitioner. You maybe might look down to those who think sex is a problem, and you have integrated that, so you feel, but you don't realize it's just a story. It's just a bunch of a bunch of stories, and you become defensiveness. Maybe you become uh, judgmental towards people who are still stuck in the shravakayana. Yeah? Because you have a higher view. So it's lopsided. Based as it is on some flawed metaphysical theory. So flawed in the sense of confusion with the map and the territory. So that is, that is a flawed metaphysical view. So what is your metaphysical view? It's, a, it's important to get to know that. What is your metaphysical view? Yeah. What, is your, what, what, is, what is the map you use to navigate? Is part of that map, for example, your metaphysical view is there is an outside reality which is made out of atoms. It's a very common metaphysical view in our culture. And you might not even aware that you have that view, that you're using that map. And you, you can start to notice that you have that map if you feel somehow offended or like you want to argue with someone who says, this is all consciousness. So now, you could be someone who has that view, a metaphysical view, this is all consciousness. So you have a hard time with someone who insists with authority because he has, has studied physics, that is really stupid to think that everything is consciousness. So you feel offended by it. You cling to that view. Everything is consciousness. Everything is one. There is no separation. Yeah. How reactive you are, you irrational extremists. 
I mean, it's it, it's hard. It's kind of you know how reactive you are, you consciousness believer, your materialist materialism believer. How reactive you are. You are irrational, extremist. You are an extremist. You are a non-dual extremist. Everything is one. There is no self. It's nothing. Just rest in consciousness. How reactive you are. Christian or whatever. Or atheist. So everything I said before the break, kind of my, my bit of commentary to this. So I w want to go to first 1.4, where he starts the discussion of the eight yanas. Yeah? So that's the system in the Nyingma tradition, the nine yanas. And there's eight verses now, because the ninth yana is the Dzogchen view which is beyond all views. It's the view, viewless view. The viewless view. The positionless position. So he starts again with mind itself. Mind itself, originally pure, is like space. Mind itself, originally pure, is like space. So in the beginning he said, Actually, you can't talk about it, but I will talk about it. And he's doing it. Yeah? So when we say, when we read descriptions like this, original pure is like space, we might feel like, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, you know because you have memorized it yeah? and you have read it before. Yeah, so you know, yeah, yeah. But uh, that's uh, that, that's a, that's a confused mind. Yeah. It's just another map. And if you stop there, then you are just a parrot, and you have learned the non-dual jargon uh, and you become defensive about it or mis mis you become a missionary and you look down upon the poor materialists who still believe that there's a world out there made from atoms. Uh, so that's mind itself, or original pure, is like space. As long as you look for it with conceptual to tools, you will you are like a bug encasing itself in its own spit like a bug encasing itself in its own spit yeah like a you know so you you have some secret coming out which is the conceptual mind Trungpa Rinpoche calls it the cocoon it's like a cocoon and and that spit can be any kind of metaphysical view. Yeah. And we then, this metaphysical view creates perceptual filters which makes the world appear in certain ways. 
and it shapes the way we interpret things, how we judge things, how we value things. That's the spit. You can say it's like the spit of the the spit, the spit, the spit of the brain. It's the spit of the brain. And then we are sitting there in that cocoon. And we prefer people who sit in the same kind of cocoon. So as, as Mayana practitioners, we like to sit with Mayana practitioners. And uh, like a, a, someone who has encased himself in the Shravakayana view would never go to any kind of tantric teaching. Never. Because they are wrong. They are confused. They, they distort the teachings of the Buddha from, from, from the point of view of a Shravaka, Shravaka, fundamentalistic Shravakayana practitioner. In your obsession, you turn your back on what is truly meaningful. Yeah? You, turn your, you turn your back on what is truly meaningful from, from this approach here, from the Dzogchen point of view, what is truly meaningful is to do the practice or to use the, the approach of just sitting so that that mysterious possibility opens up. So if we are encasing ourselves in a metaphysical view which creates perceptual filters which makes the world appear to us in a certain way, as if, as if the, the spit is out there um, and comes back to us, um, then we turn away from the possibility of liberation, of freedom, of awakening. And then he says, how worn out you must be. How worn out. Do you know that? That being worn out by spiritual practice? Worn out. 100,000 of that. 500,000 of that. In case of Lama Sopa. 10 years. 15 years. 20 years. You don't get anywhere, obviously. 500,000 Vajrasattva mantras, one and a half years in Vajrasattva retreat, you don't get anywhere, nothing changes. Often, in that kind of practice, not even your suffering relieves. Not even that. I mean, that's amazing. People who practice 20, 30 years, and they suffer in the same way. Because through their practice, they turn away from, from what is really meaningful. Yeah. And one can project that kind of practice for the rest of this life. Nothing happens in terms of liberation, in terms of traveling lighter. You actually become more, more of a 
more of a annoyance to others because you became a fundam fundamentalist, a policeman, Dharma police. So actually the practice didn't relieve you. And it, it can happen. It sneaks onto us. That worn out, you know, coming to that place of being worn out by one's practice, is also a place of great possibility. You know, that place of you know, what is called in the Christian tradition, the dark night of the soul, which for a Christian practitioner would be to doubt the presence, the existence of God. That is actually a place of possibility. That disenchantment with a practice which is based on belief systems. And if one has invested a lot of energy into that, it's very, I mean, that's an existential crisis. So if you are in a doubtful place with, one, with your practice, with your path, you kind of feel that you have lost your practice or you have lost your refuge, this is a very rich place. And it should happen in every life, a few times actually, in, in one's life. Because you start to realize that the map you have been using so far, the good map, the Dalai Lama map, is just a map. So then what? What can I rely upon? And then a possibility might open up. Something more genuine, something more authentic. Before the break I, I mentioned like that Peter Fenner challenged me into the practice of just sitting. So I did that for a few months. But what happened then, I just want to add to that, what happened then, that some of the practices re-emerged. So some of the practice, heavy-duty practices I did before. And so I'm, they are happening, but they are happening lightly, playfully. They, they are happening, but I don't believe them in, in I don't believe them in, in I don't believe them anymore but, but they still they are still playing out in their glory. It's a very different way to practice yeah. Difficult to explain what I meant, but maybe something was communicated. How worn out must you must be, your listeners, from rejecting everything. So the listeners, that's the first jnana, the shravakayana, it's called. And uh, uh, a lot of the 
teachings in Tibetan Buddhism are within that view, within that frame. So they are called listeners because these are practitioners who listen to teachings, for example, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the teachings on mindfulness, the teachings on no-self, and they practice them, they apply them. The practices of the nine stages of shamatha, yeah? so these are all the practices. So vipassana practice and shamatha practice, that's embedded in that view. Philosophically, these two, there's two schools, uh, uh, which they are called Vaibhashika school and Sapantika school. So there's difference between these schools, and you know we could spend now, I mean, many months just to get to know. That these are complex metaphysical systems. I mean, it's not like. Know something, you know, you can study, like in the Tibetan tradition, the monks, they actually go to these different schools and they study them so much that they become a listener. And they completely believe that. And then they move to the next view. And to the next. Yeah. And they spend years. These are very sophisticated views metaphysical systems. And a lot of the teachings uh, we receive uh, are belonging to that, to that view. And at that time, at least in the beginning when we received these teachings, like the teachings on karma and so on, past and future lives, we think, oh wow, that's great. Now I know. Now I, have understand, I understand the whole thing. It's karma, the reason for my suffering is the identification with an I, with a self. So I just need to realize no self, and that's the end of suffering. And that's what you do on this, uh, on this vehicle. So that's the listeners. So Ken McLeod, uh describes um, what can happen in a practitioner who holds on a conceptual understanding of no self or emptiness. So what's the problem with uh, actually in the Gluck tradition, you most of the time you hear that in a correct conceptual understanding of emptiness is necessary to have an experience of emptiness. Yeah. So, time-wise, time what a Gluck monk does with his life is mainly to establish a valid conceptual understanding of emptiness. That's what the teachings on Lama of Lama Tsongkhapa are about. And they really hold on to that. If that is challenged, they were ready to go for, into war. 
monasteries uh, which hold the direct view, oh, because the Goluk tradition was also the one who had the political power in Tibet, they were wiped out. It was forbidden, the direct view. And it's still looked upon with suspicion. So what's the problem with um, conceptual images? You know, to bring conceptual images. Maybe we could use a one image uh, it could be the mind is like the sky. It's a beautiful metaphor, a beautiful story. So, but obviously it's not mind itself. It's, it's, it's an image, it's words. So when we believe in these words, when we feel they are describing something, when we are not approaching these words as an attempt of someone trying to share an experience. Yeah? So when we make a philosophy out of it, oh, mind is like the sky, mind is pure. So we make a belief system out of it. So what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that we approach the meditation with a certain idea how it should feel, how it should look like. And that view, which prevents us, that that possibility, this mysterious possibility, opens up. Because we compare, we feel okay, mind is like the sky, so definitely thoughts, thoughts are not it. So we try to exclude thoughts because we are looking for the mind like the sky. So he says it like this. The more we hold on to a conceptual understanding of non-self or emptiness, the more we reject the thoughts, feelings and sensations that arise in our experience. We reject them because they intrude on our idea of emptiness. We reject them because they intrude, I used the example of the mind like the sky, because they intrude into, into that idea. It doesn't fit into our idea of the nature of mind. Emptiness has become a thing for us. Awareness has, has become a thing for us. Awakening has to become a th has has become a thing for us. Ideas about awakening, things we read from other people, stories about awakening. So the story of awakening and how it should feel and what you need for awakening and so on and so on. All, can you see how all that prevents us for that possibility to arise? Because we, we, we exclude things. We feel our, 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 wake, our awakening should be like Eckhart Tolle's awakening. Yeah. And, and we miss our awakening, which is beyond words. So 
So it's important to, 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 to start to experience that your belief systems determine what you're able to see. So your belief system, your, the metaphor, your, your idea of emptiness, shapes what you see and what you don't see. You miss your own awakening with the stories of awakening, with the stories of what is still needed and why you are not awakened because, you know, I still have depression, so I'm definitely not awakened. That's a story. So with that story, you will never awaken. Because there will be always something which will not fit into an idea of awakening. Emptiness has become a thing to us. It is it is a bit like rejecting wind, fog, rain, rainbows, or mist because they intrude the sky. We are caught up in our idea of how emptiness or non-self or original purity should be and do not experience how it is. We are caught up in our idea how emptiness or non-self or original purity should be how liberation should be, how it should feel, and do not experience how it is. Yeah. Is there anything to add? Yeah. What happens with the Galuk monks that actually get the non-dual experience if they are in, so into the conceptual idea? It's, it rarely happens. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> but if... like teachers like Lama Yeshe. I've never met him, but you know, I have a sense of his presence. But I, I met other, like Geshe Jampa Gyatso, for example. He was the abbot of Nalanda when I was there. He passed away a few years ago. I, it's just, I mean, you could feel in his presence and how he responded and how he talked with people that he didn't have a position to defend. He didn't need to... He, like Lama Yeshe with a bunch of Italians, he would just cook pasta for them. And, you know, from, a, from, a other, from another point of view, other people who would be still not free from their maps, they would say, that's a waste of time. You need to teach them the Four Noble Truths. 
You need to teach them that in pasta cooking there is no happiness. Uh, no pasta in the world will will nurture, will, will 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 liberate you, will free you. But Lama Yeshe would just, as his practice, as his transmission uh, of the non-dual experience, which was uh, just oozing out of him, even if it, when he was cooking pasta. So cooking pasta for a bunch of Italians was part of his transmission. Yeah. So you, 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 you get a sense of uh, someone who is teaching a view, but he does it, I mean, he, while he is teaching, he sees the emptiness of it. He sees the emptiness of the person who is teaching, he sees, sees the emptiness of the, the teaching, and he sees the emptiness of the person who is receiving the teaching. So it just becomes that, yeah, and it becomes that, just that beautiful display of, of the arts, of the magnificent, wonderful Buddhist Lamrim teachings. But it's it doesn't feel like an attack. It doesn't feel like this person tries to convince you of something. You might be maybe even more interested in what you have to say and what you think. And and he can listen without without judging it. And yeah, I hope that my teaching, my way of teaching develops into that direction. And sometimes it does. I mean, I'm often the one where, you know, uh, wives bring the husband, you know, just to get, you know, get them introduced a little bit. But because it seems that just, I mean, I'm also giving Lamrim teachings, but it seems there is not so much like that kind of sense of attack and trying to convince and, you know, and you are wrong and I'm right. Because I, I try to keep it lightly, and while I teach, while I teach, I laugh about myself. And, and while I teach, I, I see there's nothing there. And then, of course, I, I told you I'm still open to feel afraid when there's a senior monk in the room, and uh, so. But um, but uh, I can I can I can really feel that I that here and in all of us is the capacity to be completely fearless. I mean, imagine Stefan Pender teaching Tibetan senior monks. And uh, is not afraid. Speaks his heart. Has nothing to defend. No response when they get up. 
One is left. <laughs> I can feel that capacity. I, I know that I'm able to do that. Maybe not in this life, I don't know. But, but, but I can, I, I know. And I know that all of us, we have that capacity. It's a bit of a... So maybe then, maybe that shows like a fundamentalistic uh, direct path view from, from here, from this side. Sometimes I... I how, to, how to say that? I'm, I'm, dis, I'm disappointed or... Well, maybe also a bit sad how a, an overemphasis on the conceptual teachings, you know, analytical meditation, lamrim, and so on, how, how little I sometimes see in some people, and of course this might be just projection, actually happens in terms of traveling lighter, having less suffering. I mean, if I compare the level of suffering which is experienced here with now and 50 years ago, I mean, it's a reduction of 80%. So that's, uh, I think that's, and even His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, uh, I've heard him saying, criticizing the, this emphasis on, on the conceptual level within the Galuk tradition. He's, he also sees it critical. Yeah. Some of the Tibetan teachers I've met, they never meditated. It's just, it's just like they they still read text after text and try to figure out the most trying and believing that through a conceptual understanding, even if it's really aligned with the view of Lama Tsongkhapa, that that is that 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 that's it. You have to go further. So, of course, I'm, as every, as every teacher, I'm partial and um, confused. So, in the same way, I, I, I kind of try to share with you the possibility to hold views lightly. And again, 
holding views lightly doesn't undermine our capacity to choose, to choose wholesome views, to choose to use maps which reduce your suffering, which make which which make give you space to breathe, give you space to be yourself. Maps which help you to be more comfortable under your skin. So we use the maps, but we are aware that they are maps and that they are not the territory. So the same is true of what I'm saying. You have to, you have to keep it lightly. Because I'm partial, I'm confused. I'm, I, I'm uneven. Like every teacher I've met is uneven. You know, there's stuff, there's shadow, there's confusion, there's all kinds of stuff which bleed into the way teachers teach. Uh, 